You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning, Village Church. My name is Adam. And I'm one of the the pastors here, and we're excited whether you're joining us on the live stream or here with us at the 210. We're excited that you're here. Um, I get to preach a couple of times a year, um, so that's not very often, but I'm always excited to to get the opportunity to do this. We're kind of in a transition period where uh, Pastor Matt wrapped up the Micah series, Justice for All, last week. We're heading into a new series that Pastor Scott's going to kick off next week. on the attributes of God. And so there was this opportunity for me to kind of step in here and, 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 and fill a hole. And, and, and so I really just want to speak from the heart and what God has laid on my heart uh, this, this morning. And I'll tell you at the, at the front end of this, one, I've decided to sit, which may be a little awkward, and I may get up later. I've got the okay to do that if I need to. But um, this, this lesson is a little light on application. As I was putting it together, I was wrestling with uh, what I felt like God had laid on my heart and what I wanted the thrust of the message uh, to come through. And what I would like to do is um, emphasize, highlight, draw you into, and then declare truths that us as individual believers and the church at large can find rest in, can find mercy and grace in our time of need. And so those are just kind of pre-sermon thoughts before we we jump in um, and what I hope kind of comes through this morning. Uh, Let's pray together and then we'll get started. God, thanks for being gracious. Thanks for the the privilege and the opportunity to gather as your church, uh, whether it's in homes, uh, looking at a computer or TV screen or or here, God, that uh, the invisible church is advancing, your kingdom is advancing all across the world. And God, this morning, we ask that you would uh, remind our wandering hearts of your presence and what you've done and the implications of God becoming flesh in our world. And so we pray for comfort and joy that you would satisfy completely. I pray that you would speak in and through me and that your spirit would be present. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Where once was light, now darkness falls. Where once was love, love is no more. Don't say goodbye. Don't say I didn't try. These tears we cry are falling rain for all the lies you told us, the hurt, the blame. And we will weep to be so alone We are lost. We can never go home. So in the end, I will be what I will be. No loyal friend was ever there for me. Now we say goodbye. We say you didn't try. These tears you cry. I don't know if those words sound familiar to you, but they were were a song sang by the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings just before... Uh, he had decided to take back the ring from Frodo and Sam uh, in, that, in that second movie. 
and I'm not a Lord of the Rings expert, but I did do some uh, research. Gollum is a complicated character, um, and he has an even more complicated past from how he first encountered the ring that he would later call his precious to how he met his fateful end. And the drawl of the ring and its powers that it enabled were more powerful than his desire to be in community and in relationship. His choice to pursue the ring above all else led Smeagol, I think that's how you say his name, before he was known as Gollum, to live a life of isolation and loneliness. And throughout his life, and you can even see it in the song, there's this internal conflict, this struggle uh, that he has with the ring. He hates what the ring does to him, warping his heart, in his mind, in his body, but he loves how it can make him feel, just as he loved and hated himself. Our desire for light and love are at the foundation, are a foundational human desire and part of our experience. The desire to be fully known and fully loved is an inescapable part of what it means to be human. To be known in a way that accounts for all of our experiences, the things that have happened to us and the things that we have done to others, the choices that we've made, whether good or bad, the struggles, the failures and the sufferings, the successes and the triumphs, to be fully known and yet simultaneously at the same time to be fully loved and safe. And like Gollum, we can make things out of this life ultimate things and begin to pursue them above all else, even really good things that we want to bear the weight of our ultimate desire of light and love. And these things, they make promises to us and they end up warping our minds and our hearts and even our bodies as we make sacrifices to them. The Bible has a word for this and it's called idolatry. And in Exodus chapter 20, God spoke these words to Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai confronts directly our worship. And it's been said that if we obey this command, then the other commands we will obey. And if we break this first command, then it's likely we're going to break the other commands. We long to be fully seen, fully loved, fully accepted, and yet our hearts are prone to wander and pursue the presence of lesser gods instead of the presence of the one true God. In these introductory uh, verses in the Gospel of John, we get to see that an eternal Christ that has ushered us into God's presence that has smashed idols and is smashing idols and building a priesthood of believers 
that get to experience grace upon grace. And so the main idea this morning and, and what we're shooting at is God in the flesh has secured his presence among his people now and forever. God in the flesh has secured his presence among his people now and forever. And I got three points this morning. The first one is the longest. The second two are um, a little bit shorter. First point, in the beginning, there was a temple, but we knew better. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The beginning of this text may, may sound familiar. In the beginning, right, John is, is wanting us to reference or remember or recall Genesis uh, chapter 1. And, and the, the, creation, the creation story, among um, a whole host of things, points us to the original intent for God's Creation. Eden, the garden, was to be a temple in which God dwells with his people. Eden is certainly the first couple's home, but more importantly, it is God's sanctuary. The garden temple where the creator and his image bearers can relate. And so God took six days to create time and space, and light, and darkness, and then fill his earth with creatures built to live and function in perfect communion with their creator. Eden is where God's presence and glory fill the earth as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his Trinitarian love shared with his creation for the first time in eternity. And that love is meant to be shared and multiplied in his good world. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. There was unbroken relationship between man and woman and between God and man. And yet most of us know how the story unfolds. Darkness was invited into the world and in a moment, the very fabric of God's good world the presence and communion with the creator was broken, was fractured. And this is where we see the temple theme emerge in, in scripture from Eden, but then also the part it's going to play in the unfolding redemptive action that God is taking in scripture. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes to uh, give you an overview of uh, how this is unraveled in the Old Testament. So in Exodus... After God uh, has led his people out of Egypt and out of bondage on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses a vision of a throne room which becomes the pattern for the tabernacle and all future sanctuaries. So as we see that the tabernacle, it not only points back to Eden, the original temple, but it's also pointing to a new Eden that is to come. The tabernacle that was given uh, in Exodus was a portable Mount Sinai 
where God's people through the priest can come into God's presence. And then fast forward in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, after Israel has come into the promised land and has settled in the land, we have a, a record of, of God giving Solomon wisdom to build a temple in Jerusalem. And this temple is going to replace God's nomadic tent that would travel around uh, with uh, the Israelites and become the permanent fixture in Jerusalem. And its sheer size and beauty surpassed that of the first tabernacle and demonstrated how God's uh, his temple is, is increasing in both beauty and glory. This is the place on earth that overlaps with God's heavenly home. This is where God lives and rules creation. Now, David knew that the building itself was, was just a, a symbol, that God's presence couldn't be contained to that temple, but it was actually pointing that all of earth was God's temple. This is why, again, the temple is, is filled with Eden imagery, garden imagery, and modeled after the Garden of Eden. And priests, they were meant to work and keep the temple in God's presence, which is exactly uh, the same mandate, the same command that Adam and Eve had in the garden. Fast forward even further in the prophet uh, Ezekiel during the exile and after God's presence, his spirit has, a, has left, has abandoned the temple, Ezekiel describes a future temple that will overflow with streams of living water. And this water will cleanse the earth and God's presence will once again dwell with his people. So Eden was a temple before there was a temple. This is the original intention for all of creation. And it's the story that the Bible is telling. It's a story of God's presence among his people. One writer uh, describes the purpose of the first tabernacle this way. The tabernacle is the avenue through which God will encounter his people. It is the means to an end, but not the end itself. The goal is for God's people, the ones he has just delivered, to enter into relationship with him and experience his presence. Each element of that tabernacle and each action carried out there is meant to permit and promote the relationship of God to his people. So the temple theme throughout scripture is a source of great wonder and hope. And when the world around us seems to be crumbling and, and we can look at and, and trust the ever steady rise of God's dwelling place in our world as a gospel reminder that even when our flesh and our plans may fail, God is bringing us into his dwelling place, his very temple. But unlike Adam and Eve, uh, not unlike Adam and Eve, there's a, a temptation to distrust this God. And sometimes it, it's almost as natural as, as breathing. Even for those of us that have claimed Christ, the ever subtle lore of money 
career, power, family, sports, country, reputation, name a thing, will war against God's goodness and glory and lead us to embrace lies that seek the comfort and presence of created things versus the creator. And we become like little golems, assigning weight and glory to man-made things. And so now our default is to hide, to cover up, to deflect, to redirect, and to mask our sin. We become experts at identifying the sin in other people. While at, the very, at our very best, we have a hard time identifying it in ourselves. And at our worst, we just ignore it altogether. And there's no better place that I found that helps illustrate this point than our phones. I mean, imagine a world where you can communicate with anyone at any time, anywhere in the world. And in this world, you can communicate uh, not just with voice or text, but with video, with FaceTime or Zoom. You can actually see each other. Imagine a world where there are platforms where uh, you can exchange information and interact with any idea, any story, any image, any piece of data, and it can be seen immediately by hundreds or thousands or even millions of people. And we carry this capability around in our pockets. It's with us everywhere we go. Now, imagine we have this ability at our fingertips and we become more isolated, more alienated, and more anxious than maybe any time in history. That this, this, this good, neither good nor bad device that we've built our lives around has all sorts of unintended and unforeseen consequences that we struggle to see in the moment because of how it has enhanced so many areas of our lives and the convenience that it's provided to our life. The technology is new, but the underlying fractures that it exposes is as old as time itself. And it's just provided a vehicle to expose our sin and brokenness. And it continues to feed us false promises that it can never deliver. It's provided a means to exploit our sinful condition in new ways. It's left us burnt out, confused, and looking for answers. And this is how idols work. They promise something they can never deliver and they ask and require enormous sacrifice. So our, our technology, particularly the phone, has promised connection and presence and access to infinite, immediate knowledge and community, which are all really good things. But because humans have created it and because humans operate it, it's delivered more and more anxiety, political polarization, addiction, and loneliness. It has 
robbed us of little moments while promising to capture every single moment. Now hear me, this is not an indictment on our technology. It's not a sermon about iPhones or social media. Use both of them, caution, use with caution, but use them. But it just provides us a window into our idle chasing hearts. But we see God's intent for his world from the beginning of creation. God's first temple, the Garden of Eden, where ultimately God, he banishes them, but he does not abandon them. And his goal is the pursuit of his presence among his people. He is promising to dwell among them. So in the beginning, there was a temple, but we knew better. Number two, Jesus is the true and better temple. In John 1, starting in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Perhaps most amazing of all is that Jesus is described as God's dwelling place. He is God with us, Emmanuel. The word became flesh and dwelt. The word can be loosely translated tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And this means that in Christ, he is the meeting place between God and man. In him, the fullness of God dwelt bodily, Colossians chapter 2, 9. And in him, we have access into the very throne room of God, Hebrews chapter 10. And therefore, we ought to come regularly into his presence, not with fear or shame or guilt, but as a declared son and daughter of the king. We have been granted access. Jesus is the true and better temple that instead of requiring sacrifices to enter the Holy of Holies, he became the priest and the sacrifice himself. He became separated from God so that we can be united and dwell in his presence now and forever. Hebrews 4, 6 says it like this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. My uh, family and I just got back from uh, vacation to the beach and it was six days or so of eating, beach, pool, eating, and on repeat uh, again for five or six days, and one of the joys of that time was just getting to stand in the ocean and watch my kids play in the waves and, and ride waves on, 
on boogie boards. Um, I have a 15-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, 11-year-old son, and a 9-year-old daughter. And some of the greatest times are just to get to be with them and in their presence. And one afternoon, um, I spent time in the ocean with the water up to my knees, watching my nine-year-old ride wave after wave. And I'm standing uh, in the ocean watching her experience every range of emotion, unfettered joy as she caught a wave and rode it 20 yards into the shore, only to stand up and to look around just to make sure that I was watching her. And then there were times where the wave would come and wash over her and she would, she would miss it. She, she was a little bit late on catching the, uh, the break of the wave and she would be frustrated. And there were times where the wave was too big and it would crash over her and tumble her body and twist her body in the water. And I would watch as, as terror would fill her face. But I would run over and help her and, and make sure that she was okay. But what kept her in the water and continuing to ride the waves was the knowledge that her daddy was there the whole time. Watching, present, and available. She knew that I wouldn't let anything happen to her. No matter what would come, she knew that I was there to experience the joy, to pick her up when she failed, and that I would always keep my eyes on her. She was fully known, and she was fully loved, and she was safe. This analogy is um, admittedly imperfect. I don't control the waves. I would stand with her and we would try to make the waves stop and they just kept coming and coming and coming. But I couldn't help but think about God's, his promise of his spirit and his presence in our lives. That in the midst of a world that seems uh, out of control, that there's new forms of chaos that we awaken to and that are unleashed almost every day, we have a God and a Savior that is as close as our breath and has secured his presence among us forever. And he invites us into a real relationship with him. And so for those that that have believed, that have trusted Christ, Our status has been forever changed. We've been granted access. We can cry, Abba, Father. He is our good dad. And he desires and he is in the water with us. And he controls the waves. So how would your life look different 
if you knew you were perfectly known, all of you, and yet perfectly loved, and that God was present wherever he has you? How would that reshape your days? Would it impact your view of the upcoming election? Would it impact your view of when you're scrolling your news feed and all of the cultural challenges and issues of our day? Would it impact your view of a pandemic? Jesus is the true and better temple that fulfilled the requirements of the law and its promises of the covenant by laying down his life as a sacrifice to secure his presence among his people now and forever. Number three, Jesus is building a temple. In the beginning was a temple. We knew better. Jesus is a true and better temple. And number three, Jesus is building a temple. God's presence is his mission. In John chapter one, picking up in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So today, God dwells in heaven, but by his spirit, he also dwells in us, the church. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 6 that we are a temple of the living God and that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. And likewise in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if we skip down verses 9 and 10, read, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are, according to Peter, living stones rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. And we're being intricately placed in the formation of a spiritual house, 
a temple that embodies Christ's very presence in this world. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a command, a mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. Adam and Eve were to do this in Eden, which was the the, uh, epicenter of God's relational presence in his creation. And as the first couple, as they obeyed, those commands and they expanded so too the garden's borders would expand and with it God's presence in the same way God's presence is also his mission among his church drawing his people to himself and to the ends of the earth we armed with his spirit and the gospel are the means by which God is flooding the world with his presence. So your workplace, your school, the soccer or baseball field, your neighborhood, these are all good gifts from God what's meant to reflect him and proclaim his goodness, his mercy, in his grace, his excellencies. In Revelation, uh, we finally see the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride. And there won't be a temple, uh, for the Lamb will be the temple of God. This is our ultimate hope. That at the end of the age, all the cosmos will experience the glory of God's holiness. And it will be as sacred as the innermost chamber of the temple. And so I wonder how the words of, of Gollum's song might have changed if he were living out of this story and he knew these truths we can never go home so in the end I will be what I will be no loyal friend was ever there for me now we say goodbye we say you didn't try these tears you cry We have a faithful and loyal Christ who has secured his presence among his people and we will never be alone. And God is is not a magic genie. We have a tendency to treat him this way and to keep him on the shelf until troubles come our way or... We, we want something that maybe our, our neighbor has. The problem is that's, that's not how relationships work. That's not a real relationship. And especially with the triune God, the Lord over all will not be left on the shelf of anyone's life. 
And instead, Scripture is clear that all of life, and especially the gospel life, is about being in God's relational presence. So this is why David proclaims in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no other way. There's no ring, no idol, no pursuit that can bear the weight of God's promise of his very presence that he has secured among his people now and forever. The band can come up. I'm going to lead us in prayer. There's going to be some reflection questions on the screen. Uh, I will be in the back with a mask on. If there's anyone here that would like to chat, you can reach out to me or uh, let's pray together. God, what an amazing privilege that we don't just get to gather as your people, but that we get to be, come into your very presence, into the very throne room, that we get to reveal, that we get to have truth revealed to us, not to shame us or uh, to make us feel guilty, but if we're in Christ, truth that will sanctify us, that will form us more into the image of Christ. And God, that we get to experience your grace upon grace and find help in our times of need, that we're not alone, that you're as close as a breath, that your spirit is ministering to us in ways that we can see and ways that we can't see. And so God, I pray that you would remind us of this truth, that you would draw us into this truth, that this would uh, encourage and empower the church throughout history, but certainly in our time, to live in a way that is far different than what we see being played out in our world. And so I pray this is an encouragement. Pray that you are glorified in what we say and do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.